Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,439. Today, we're going to go to a very cool museum. And if you love racing, you'll love this place. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in North Carolina with a very special guest by the name of Tom Jensen. Tom, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I have it in gear, and I'm ready to pop the clutch. You bet. Let's go, Mark. I hope so. you got a lot of fun uh, cars there to uh, do that in uh, for what we're going to talk about today, and, and that's a little uh, hint to the listeners of what we're going to be talking about. Before we dive into that, though, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about you, Tom? Well, I work at the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, and we've been in Charlotte for all but two years since 1996. So 25 of the last 27 years. But what people don't know about me, or most people don't know about me, is before we settled in Charlotte, we lived, and my family and I lived in 10 different states. 10? 10. Wow. Far north is New Hampshire, far south is Florida, and as far west as Hawaii. My just about goodness. Between. Yeah. So what caused all that? When I was a kid, my father went through a series of promotions, and that resulted in, in three or four moves. And as an adult, I was fortunate enough in a prior life to go through a series of promotions as well. And um, before I went into motorsports and, and cars full-time, I was a business editor for a company called American City Business Journals. And I worked at the Phoenix Business Journal, San Jose, Pacific Business News in Honolulu. And, you know, they sent me places where the editorial department needed help and needed strong leadership. So I would I would go in and help uh, build a great team there. And when I was finished, they'd move me somewhere else. So it was fun, but I'm glad to be in one place now. Well, wow, I can't even imagine that. I, I'm pretty much the opposite. Uh, same house until graduating from college and then lived in a couple of places, but I've lived in the home we're in here for, oh gosh, since 94. And the house we had before was 11 years. So, uh, but my wife, she came from a military family. So she was used to bouncing around all over the world. And, uh, but she always says, well, this is the longest I've ever lived anywhere in my life. So what would you say was one of the biggest challenges of, of having a career where you're having to move so often? The economics of it are difficult because whenever you move, you end up spending a fair amount of money on things that you wouldn't expect to, yeah. to need. You know, new, new furniture, new drapes, new this, new that. Uh, that was a challenge. You, you know, you have to leave friendships behind, which is difficult. I've, I've been the best part of moving around is I have friends all over the country now, which I'm, I feel very fortunate about. But it's hard. Hard to say goodbye to them, but that's um, 
just the cost of doing business, I guess. I guess so. Well, and uh, probably back in a lot of those days, we didn't have the fast way to connect via the mobile phones and FaceTimes and social media and all that, where you, you feel like you have all these connections with all these people. At least I do. However, many of them, I never get a chance to go see or go be there, but I kind of feel like I'm a little part of their family a little bit. But that wasn't that way back then, right? No, it wasn't that way back then. And it's much easier to stay connected now. And and I like that. Yeah, I do too. I, I suffer from a certain amount of phone anger because the phone has replaced the automobile as as the most coveted object of teenagers in America nowadays. And that's a whole nother story. But it does allow us to stay in touch. And that's a great thing. Well, it is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me give you an introduction here. We're going to dive into your current location. I'm glad I was able to okay. catch you in one place for a little while, at least. So <laughs> Tom Jensen is the Cutorial Affairs Manager at the NASCAR Hall of Fame there in Charlotte, where they honor drivers, all-time great crew chiefs, team owners, broadcasters, spectacular cars, and other major contributors to the competition within the sanctioning body. He's a veteran of more than 25 years of writing about auto racing and cars. Tom formerly served at Motorsports and Automotive Industry, editor-in-chief for FoxSports.com. He is the author of several books, and his work has appeared in numerous newspapers and websites in North America. We'll learn a lot more about the NASCAR Hall of Fame and about Tom, but first a word from our sponsors. So give them a little listen, buckle up. We're going to be moving quick today. We'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up. But my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. Hey, guess what? Some of you regular listeners will remember back in 2019, I created uh, 10, 11 shows called Cars Yeah TV, where I went to some fabulous locations of past Cars Yeah guests, and we did a TV show about it. Well, they're up on the Cars Yeah YouTube channel. So go check it out at YouTube. Just type in Cars Yeah, and the shows will be there for you 
to enjoy. I hope you have fun watching. So with all your moving around, where you've landed now is the NASCAR Hall of Fame. What brought you to this location? And I'm guessing, too, by some of the things I mentioned in your intro, you're kind of a car guy. Oh, I'm totally a car guy. I got started as a car guy young. Literally, my early I was born in 1957, so I'm 66 years old. My earliest memory of life was as a three-year-old in my uncle's basement cutting up plexiglass to make custom taillights for my father's 59 Impala. I taught myself how to read, reading Hot Rod magazine when I was four years old. And when I was a kid, uh, let's see, six years old, in February of 1964, I was walking home from kindergarten. In those days, you could walk from, you know, a mile from school to your house. And two houses up the street from me, I lived in Maitland, Florida, uh, which is of a suburb of Orlando, central Florida. And two houses up the street from me was a slant back pickup truck with a gleaming white Dodge stock car on it with the number six. And I was just fascinated. So being a six-year-old kid, I climbed up and started peeking in the car and a guy came running out of the house. And he said, what are you doing, son? I said, mister, I just want to see your race car. <laughs> and so he spent about half hour, 45 minutes with me, opened up the hood, showed me the 426 Hemi under the hood, let me sit in the seat and turn the wheel and talk to me about the car. And I didn't know anything about it then, but the car belonged to a gentleman from South Carolina named Cotton Owens, who's a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, an inductee. And it was driven by another Hall of Famer, David Pearson. And they're, they're both unfortunately deceased now, but Cotton's daughter was at the hall a year or two ago, and I told her that story. And she goes, oh, of course, I remember that house. That was dad's best friend. Whenever we went to Daytona, that's where we'd stay because it was wow. about an hour from Daytona. So, you know, I, I came by my, my love of cars at a very young age. What a wonderful story. I mean, th that's got to tug at your heartstrings when you see those names of those drivers and in that car, pictures of that car to, to beckon you back to that time. And what a nice person to spend so much time with a young kid and kind of set that cornerstone in place for your passion for cars. What a great story. That's the best way to make a fan for life is start with them young. And we actually had a replica of that car in the hall for three of the six years of I live there. And every time I walk by it, I think about that story and smile. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I want to have you talk a lot more about NASCAR Hall of Fame. What this museum is about? When was it created? When people come and visit, what can they expect to see? Well, in the early 2000s, NASCAR decided they needed a place, one central place to, to be the holder of their history and heritage. And so they put out an RFP in Charlotte, Richmond, Kansas City, Atlanta, and Daytona bid on it. Charlotte won in large part because this is the area in which most of the NASCAR teams are based nowadays, but also because we formed a unique public-private part partnership. The NASCAR Hall of Fame is actually owned by the city of Charlotte. So every one of us who works there is a government employee. 
Although I tell our guests when they come in, we endeavor to deliver a superior level of personalized service, superior to what they might expect to find from government employees. It's, let's see, we are on, we're getting ready to induct our 14th class of Hall of Famers. We have drivers, we have crew chiefs, we have engine builders, we have people like the Francis who were founders of NASCAR. We have hundreds and hundreds of artifacts. We have, and, and it's all really good stuff. If I do say so myself, we have a trophy from the very first NASCAR race on February 15th, 1948 on Daytona Beach. We have the first NASCAR championship trophy in 1948. We have the first NASCAR championship trophy from what is now the Cup Series, which started a year later in 1949. We have helmets. We have uniforms. We have dozens of cars. We have interactives where people... Uh, we have an area called Glory Road, which ha has... 18 cars on it, ranging from 1950 to 2019. And every one of the cars has a camera mounted on the inside of the roof so you can remotely scan the cockpit and see what it looks like inside the car and compare the safety equipment from 1950 to the 60s, the 70s, and today, and so forth. We give guided tours. I do a lot of VIP tours, which is one of my very favorite things to do. And one of the things that really separates us, I, I think, is people are very passionate about working there. You know, we're, we're the only professional sports hall of fame in North America where we announce our next class on the date we vote. So we vote in the afternoon, typically in May, and then we have the announcement at the hall of fame at about five o'clock and any fan can come in and buy a general admission ticket. You don't need to know anybody. You don't need to have a pass. You don't need to have know the secret handshake. You just walk up and say, may I have a general admission ticket, please? And you can watch the class announced live, which is pretty cool. And on January 19th, we will be inducting our next class, which is seven-time NASCAR Cup champion, Jimmy Johnson. His crew chief for all seven of those championships, Chad Knauss and veteran racer Donnie Allison. So it's going to be a fun night. Well, this is fantastic. I would assume, you know, like the Vatican, when they, they vote for the next pope where the smoke comes out, does a, like a little puff of smoke come out of the exhaust of one of the cars when you, you vote for the, the next winner? Well, in a way, kind of, because what happens is if you're a member of the Hall of Fame, we have a seating area outside the room where we have the vote. And... You know, guys will take an occasional break or will leave to, to go use the facilities. And so our members can say, what's going on in there? And, you know, and we talk with them, although we, we keep the discussion of what's said in the room, in the room for the simple reason we want people to be able to speak up freely and, um, you know, say what's on their mind, good, bad or indifferent. But it's it's a fun experience. Oh, yeah. Sounds fantastic. I would assume you get a lot of wide-eyed young people coming through there that perhaps don't even have the knowledge of the, the immense history of this sport. Uh, would that be one of the things that maybe inspires you the most as somebody who 
who handles a lot of things at the museum and brings people in and educates them is is the young people that come through that are being educated like that wide-eyed kid you were when you got to look at that race car? Absolutely. We actually have a STEM program, science, technology, education, and or engineering and math. And we bring in thousands of students a year, mostly from underserved communities. And we help teach them about how NASCAR races are run, how teams function, and make them aware that you can make a great living as a mechanic in NASCAR or a crew member in NASCAR, and we really try to try to educate them. Um, I can talk about this sport till I'm blue in the face, <laughs> and I have one of the great things is, um, and, and I'll tell you this is kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. When I was at Fox Sports. We hired a new president, and he decided in his infinite wisdom that his TV shows that were aired in the daytime, he didn't want any competition for them, including our own website. So one day while coming home from a race in in Northern California, I was in an airplane taxiing up to the runway. And I got a call from HR in Los Angeles saying, is this a good time to talk? And I said, no, but I know why you're calling. And so all 52 of us at the Fox Sports website got laid off the same day. Oh, goodness. And ironically enough, the guy who made that decision got fired one week later. Oh, goodness. But, you know, we we all lost our jobs. Well, I was 60 years old at the time. And I had um, my oldest child was in the first year of college. And let me tell you, being out of work at age 60 with a kid in school is terrifying. Oh, yes. Because everybody wants the coveted you know, 25 to 34 age group employees. But an interesting thing happened. I, I knew Winston Kelly, the executive director at the Hall of Fame, and, and um, they were looking for somebody because their historian retired or was about to retire. I got laid off in June. Their historian retired in September or August. And... So they loved the idea of getting somebody my age because I'd been around for a while. Exactly. They didn't want somebody who's, who was 25 because I'd been in the sport for 20 plus years. I knew every, not everybody, but I knew most of the people in the sport. I knew the history of the sport. I knew the stories of the sport. So it was an absolute perfect fit for me. And as much as it was disappointing for things to end the way they did at Fox, when you're on the road, you know, I was on the road 25 or 30 weeks a year. And, you know, that's really hard on hard on my body. It's hard on uh, family, my family. Relationships, yeah. Exactly. And now I'm now I work a nine to five schedule most weeks. And, you know, I'm home with my family on weekends. So this was absolutely the perfect fit for me. Well, they always say when one door closes, another opens. But I, I hear you understand exactly how you're feeling. And I just had this a similar talk with a friend of mine who's of our age. I'm, I'm right behind you. I was born in 58. Uh, and this friend of mine, same thing. And he was talking about he does. He's very successful. He's built and sold many businesses. And he still does consulting. And he was talking about going down to some some of the big tech firms, and I'm talking about the big, the biggies, and everyone knows who they are. And he said, going into those buildings to do some consulting, and he said, I look around, and there's nobody in my age group to be seen. And he said, the knowledge that uh, you know us older guys, us seasoned guys, have is valuable. And he goes, I always am kind of a little bit surprised, like 
Hmm. You know, there can we can teach you a lot here. And I'm so happy that you landed where you did, combining the fact that you love cars <laughs> and, and you get to work. I mean, everything worked out really well. And I'm really, really happy to hear that because it doesn't always happen that way. When you work in a place like the NASCAR Hall of Fame, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges you face? And and maybe this goes back to what we just talked about, and that is finding great people to work there. I know museums have a lot of people who donate their time. My neighbor across the street, uh, he's a lot older than me, and he goes down to LeMay Museum, which is right near my home here, to donate his time as a docent and you know, as a helper and so thing and so forth. What's the biggest challenge of running a museum like the NASCAR Hall of Fame? There's there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> um, we have a pretty robust production schedule. We turn around exhibits much faster than most museums do, which I suppose is the nature of working in the speed business. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Self-induced. <laughs> so we, we do produce a lot. Sometimes Finding artifacts for exhibits can be difficult. Sometimes can be a challenge getting the, the, the pieces or the cars that, that you're looking for. And But along with that, there's a lot of opportunities. We get crazy good things that happen to us. We had a guy come in, oh, maybe a year ago. And, and it's funny. This is just a little aside. Nobody ever... In my job, nobody ever thinks to call ahead and make an appointment. They just walk in, mm-hmm. which is fine. Mm-hmm. But um, a guy comes in and he's got a box full of trophies and he's got a plat map, a, a big binder with a couple of plat maps in it. And he starts talking to the people at the front desk and they say, um, oh, you need to talk to Tom. So they get me down there. Well, it turns out the guy bought an old house in Charlotte and had lived in the house for some period of time and went up in the attic and found a treasure trove. Now, not a big collection, but maybe four or five trophies. And so he did some research on the house and found out in the 1960s, the house was owned by Buck Baker, who's a member of our Hall of Fame class of 2013. And those were Buck's trophies he just left in there. Oh, my gosh. And he donated to us. Um, We've had people who were incredibly generous in, in donating things to us, we had, I, I sat at home once and, or sat in my office once and the phone rang and a guy hopped on the phone and he said, Hey, I need a tax deduction. I've got a 1985 NASCAR race car. You want me to give it to you? <laughs> I said, That's great. So I'll tell you a funny story of a, a challenge we had. Alan Kowicki was in our class of 2019 and we, in, All our active inductees go in a room called the Hall of Honor, where they get a race car and they get an artifact case with 20 to 30 pieces of memorabilia from their careers. And Alan won the 1992 championship driving a Ford Thunderbird sponsored by Hooters. Alan had a very small team and had very few resources. Tragically, he was killed in a plane crash in 93. But there were very few Hooters race cars that survived. And I found one at the Hooters Hotel and Casino and contacted them and they agreed to loan it to us for a year. And we were going to get it in early January of 2019. Induction that year was February 1st. And so I called after um, after January because they wanted the, the car in their showroom for or in their lobby for New Year's. 
And I called and they didn't call me back and they didn't call me back. And finally, I get a call from a guy at the casino and he goes, hi, this is Bruno. We were going to loan you this car, but we can't now. And we're not going to tell you why. Oh, and geez. he hangs up the Oh, thanks a lot, Bruno. <laughs> so I had, this was 16 days before induction. Oh my gosh. And even know if another Hooters car existed. So I had to walk into my boss's office and tell him what happened. And I was thinking maybe I'm going to get fired. But he was very cool. He goes, make some calls, see what you can find. So I called up a bunch of people I knew. And it turns out there was a retired Toyota dealer in Wisconsin named John Safro, who had the only other surviving Alan Kowicki Hooters car from 1992. Oh, wow. And I called him up and I said, Mr. Safro, my name is Tom Jensen. I work at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. We've never met. You have no idea who I am, but we have a huge problem, and you are literally the only man in America who can help me. <laughs> well, there's, there's a nice way to set the tone. And I told him the entire story, and I said, if you loan us your car for six weeks, we can build a replica, but we, we're 16 days away. We can't build a replica in 16 days. And he said, well, let me sleep on it. Let me think about it. And so he said, I'll call you back in the morning. And, you know, I kind of thought, well, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Because a lot of times people say they'll call you back and they won't. But he called me back the next morning. And he said, man, I'm so excited. Not only can you have the car for six weeks, you can have it for a whole year. I'm so honored to have my car in the Hall of Fame. Wow. Great. So we had to go up to Wisconsin in January. On a day we got 11 inches of snow. We picked up his car. Drove it back to the hall, got it cleaned up, put it in. And I called him once it was here and I said, hey, why don't you come down for induction? He said, could I do that? And I said, absolutely. We'll get you a ticket. We'll get you a good seat. So he came down and I met him and he was the nicest man. <laughs> yeah. Just a great guy. And I took him around, gave him a tour. And on our induction ceremony is always on a Friday night. And on Saturday, each of the inductees gets an hour in the Hall of Honor with only their family and whoever they invite and a handful of us who work there. Well, Alan literally had no surviving relative. So all he had was a few crew guys and some members of his foundation. So I said to Mr. Safra, I said, hey, why don't you come in? And um, he said, would that be okay? I said, absolutely. So he got in there and he met some of the crew guys and he comes up to me and he said, I have a Sharpie. Do you think they'd autograph the inside of the trunk? I said, you bet. So we hopped up on the platform, popped the trunk, and three or four crew guys autographed it for him. And at the end of the day, induction week, we have events going on all week. So it's, it's like four or five days of Black Friday for us, but in a good way. At the end of it, we're tired and exhausted. So five o'clock Saturday, we're getting ready to close. And Mr. Safra was down in the lobby, and he calls me. He says, says hey, can you come down? I want to say goodbye. I said, sure. So he comes down gives me a big hug, and he said, this is the best weekend of my life. <laughs> I'm so proud to have my car. I'm so happy. And I said, no, sir, you don't understand. I said, I look at it this way. I think about, imagine this is a high school prom, and I'm a boy, and my girl ditches me two weeks before the dance, and I have to call you, and you know I'm not, or you're not my first call, but you said yes anyway. <laughs> nice way to put it. Oh, you I said, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for that. And we've remained good friends ever since. Well, these are car stories that I hear over and over again about car people and passion for cars and uh, willingness to share. So what a wonderful story. 
What can people look forward to in the new year since it's not that far away now? My goodness, this year flew by as fast as a NASCAR car, car goes by. What can we look forward to seeing at the museum next year? Well, we we have a whole lot going on. I did an inventory and we are having in, entirely new exhibits or upgrades to existing exhibits in 11 different exhibits. And I can't go into all of them, although I can tell you we will have a new Hall of Honor with with the uh, uh, class of 2024, as I mentioned, seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson is seven-time champion crew chief Chad Knauss and Donnie Allison. So they, we will have all their goodies in there. We will honor the, honor the uh, uh, Janet Guthrie, pioneering female driver, who will receive the Landmark Award for contributions to NASCAR. We will also honor a gentleman who you may have heard of since you're out on the West Coast named Shav Glick, who was the longtime motorsports reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He is the recipient of the Squire Hall Award for Media Excellence, named after two famous NASCAR broadcasters, the late Ken Squire, who just passed away earlier this month, and Barney Hall. Plus, we'll have about five or six other new things that I can't mention by name. But trust me, if you came this week, and you come the last week of January, you'll see a whole bunch of new stuff. Well, that's really smart of you guys to do that. That brings people back over and over. There's nothing worse than going to a museum you've been to and you kind of go, well, nothing new here. I've already seen all this stuff. So uh, you've got a, a great program set up there. You know, I, I like to ask people about special vehicles. And you, you shared a wonderful story when you were just a young boy of that special race car. But is there perhaps maybe another NASCAR car story you can share that was really special for you? Story about a specific car. Well, maybe hmm. so. Now you you've shared actually two. The one you shared about the Hooters car and getting that that's a that was a cool story. How about I, I share a story that involves a couple of cars, but it is it isn't primarily a car story, but it it, it is a good story that involves cars. In nineteen ninety nine, Tony Stewart was a rookie and he decided he wanted to try rookie in NASCAR. He decided he wanted to try to do something that had never been done. And that's run the Indianapolis 500 and the Coca-Cola 600 on the same day and run all 1100 or all, um, all the laps in both races. Nobody had ever gone the distance in both races on the same day. So I was fortunate enough to be able to travel with Tony's team and go to Indianapolis, watch the Indianapolis 500 and then fly back to Charlotte. So Tony finishes ninth in the Indy 500. He finishes two laps down, so he doesn't complete the, the, the full distance, but he ran the whole, whole race, just finished two laps down. Flies to Charlotte, helicopters into the infield of Charlotte Motor Speedway, and he's walking in towards the garage to use the restroom before he hops in his car while the other drivers are walking out to driver introductions, and he sees... Jeff Bodine and Jeff shakes his hand and congratulates him on Indy and he sees Jeff Bodine or Jeff Gordon and he also, you know, kind of gives him a pat on the back. And Dale Earnhardt walks by and Tony was a rookie. He didn't even know if Dale Earnhardt knew who he was. And Dale picked him up, put his arm around his waist, picked him up, lift him off the ground and gave him noogies <laughs> like he was a 10 year old kid who hit the winning home run in Little League. <laughs> and Tony had the most shocked look I've ever seen on his face. Well, there was, there was only one problem. 
with the, the night race. It was hotter than, than, than blazes and really humid. And Tony's idea of nutrition at a young age was a six-pack of Schlitz, a double cheeseburger, and some chili cheese fries. So oh he goodness. didn't train it. He got sick in the car. He puked in the car. They tried to give him chocolate bars to feed through a full-face helmet, which didn't work. But still, miraculously, he finished fourth in the race, which was amazing. And he pulled in a pit road to do his post-race interview, and he passed out in the car. And there's a bunch of us standing right by the car, reporters, photographers. And I was right on the door of the car looking in, and Tony's unconscious. Well, all of a sudden, Dale Earnhardt walks up. Earnhardt Sr. walks up from behind us, and we're all looking into Tony's car. So we don't see him, and he doesn't say anything. But the crowd just sort of parts when Earnhardt walks up, and he unbuckles Stewart's helmet, and he picks him up, takes his, his Seat belts off, shoulder harnesses off, picks him up, sets him down by the wheel, gives him a little slap on the face, whispers something in his ear, turns and walks away laughing. Oh, so five years, five years later, I'm in Indianapolis for the Brickyard 400, and we just finished qualifying. And I was getting ready to interview Tony. We're in his hall, and I said, Tony, before we start the formal part of this interview, i got to ask you one question that's just been bugging the crap out of me. He goes, sure, bud, what's that? I said, do you remember when Earnhardt pulled you out of the, the car in the 600? And he got a really wistful, faraway look in his eyes. And he said, yeah, of course I remember. I said, what in the hell did he say to you? And he just started laughing. He said two words. Had enough? <laughs> Had enough. Yeah. Time, time to rest. Oh, what a he wonderful said, story. Yeah. yeah, that's tremendous. Yeah, I believe I've had enough, but but that was Earnhardt's way of showing respect. He wasn't a touchy feely, huggy guy. Yeah, he wanted to make sure Tony was out of the car. And, and you know, there's so many great people in the sport. And uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm not very smart, but I'm old enough that I've seen a lot. And <laughs> and so I've been very fortunate to witness some cool moments in history. For NASCAR, and, and I'm really grateful for that, and I'm grateful to be able to get to share that knowledge now. That's, that's wonderful. I love it. You know, we love books here, and I understand you wrote a book titled Cheating. Am I right on that? Yes. Yeah. Cheating, the bad, good NASCAR Winston Cup racers do in, in pursuit of speed. I got the idea. This is another kind of kind of shaggy dog story. I was sitting in a bar in Darlington, South Carolina, one night before the Southern 500, Saturday night before the Southern 500, with Steve Wade, who was our senior editor at, at when I was at Winston Cup scene. And he had just written a book on Junior Johnson, and his book publisher was a guy named David Bull, who sadly is no longer with us. But David was a brilliant young guy. And, you know, we had had... You know, there might have been a couple alcoholic beverages involved. And I finally turned to David. I said, oh, David, I can write better than Steve. Why don't you give me a book deal? <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you what. He said, find something you really want to write about and put together a proposal. And he said, fine. He gave me some really good advice. He said, write the book that you won't be happy until it gets written. And I had studied all these cheating stories 
you know, coming up through, through the sport. So I decided to do a book on it. And just to give you a couple of examples of, of things, NASCAR crew chiefs parse the rule book the way rabbis parse the Torah. And I mean, they get into real, and I mean, no disrespect to either, either side saying that, but they can come up with the most interesting interpretations you could ever imagine. Junior Johnson once said, rule book says car got away 3,300 pounds at the start of the race. Doesn't say nothing about what it's got away after the race. So <laughs> what Junior would do when they raced at short tracks like Bristol or North Wilkesboro, the first set of tires on the car would have 100 pounds of lead welded to the inside of each of the four rims. So the first pit stop would take forever, but the car would be 400 pounds lighter when they put on regular rims afterwards. And, you know, eventually NASCAR found out and made a rule against it. Um, Smokey Eunuch did the same thing. He said a 916th fuel line is perfectly adequate to, to fuel an engine. But I put in one that's the diameter of a coffee can and, a, you know, a couple yards long and it holds a gallon and a half of gasoline. It's like make fuel tank bigger. NASCAR then came in with a rule saying, you know, specifying the diameter of it. But my favorite was a crew chief sent us an envelope one day and he said, give this to your boss. And we opened the envelope and we're two ordinary Stanley tape measures. You've seen them all. They're chrome with the black and yellow trim. And one of them's got a day glow red circle on the side and the other one's got a day glow yellow circle on the side and you know called him up and said what are these for he said take a good look at them so we, we pulled them open and they didn't measure same of course not <laughs> and neither of them was accurate one of them was too short one of them was too long but back in the day the only place they kept nascar inspectors had um uh, tape measures was at the inspection station. So if an inspector's walking down pit road and say, hey, Bob, this spoiler doesn't really look like six inches. Old Bob would reach in his pocket, pull out one of the tape measures <laughs> and go, see, it's six inches. But he had them color coded so he knew which was the, the longer one and which was the shorter one. How funny. So that, you know, stories like that became the impetus for doing the book. And I will tell you one other interesting story. Um, the day the book was published, a lawyer in Daytona Beach who represented NASCAR called my publisher and said, you will overnight six copies of this book to us. And the uh, publisher said, well, you know, you got to pay for them. He said, no, no, we don't. You're sending these to NASCAR. We're not paying for them. overnight them to us. And when my publisher told me that, I thought, holy cow, I'm in trouble now. And we never heard another word from him. There's nothing in the book they found. That was incorrect. To be, yep. Yeah, very cool. Well, you mentioned the the great late David Bull. Yeah, I was friends with him for decades. And interestingly enough, in two days, a guest is coming on Cars Yeah Here by the name of Luca Del Monte to talk about another David Bull publishing book that's titled Enzo Ferrari. And I was just on the phone this morning with his sister, uh, who's on her way to England. 
Yeah, David, uh, he was a magnificent guy, and I think I have almost every book uh, book that he's ever published on my shelf, uh, and I'm so thankful that Mariah is still heading up that publishing company, and they're still producing spectacular books. You've taken us on a wonderful ride today, Tom. You and I could talk for hours and hours and hours, no doubt. I wondered if you could leave us with some parting words of wisdom or inspiration. I will leave you with with this thought, uh, one of the, one of the real joys for me in working in NASCAR is getting able, being able over the course of more than 25 years to witness successful teams and successful individuals and really study what makes the difference between those who are successful and those who aren't. One day I was speaking with Rick Hendrick, and Rick in late 96 or early 97 was diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia, which at his age had a 95% mortality rate within the first two years. And I was talking to Rick because my mom had was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the same time and fortunately outlived the diagnosis by about 15 years. But uh, Rick said when the first thing I heard when I, there was the first thing I thought of when I heard that 95% of the people don't make it longer than two years is I asked the doctor, why can't I be one of the 5%? <laughs> let's, let's shoot That's for how that. A champ, yeah. That's how a champion thinks. Yeah. And uh, I, I have been lifted up and inspired by the great work so many people have done in this sport. No doubt. How can people learn more about the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Uh, go to our website, NASCARHall.com. I have a blog there. Um, it, it's in the menu, so just go to NASCARHall.com backslash blog, and you can read some of the great stories of the history of the sport, probably a few not-so-great ones that I've written, but most of them I'd like to think are, are pretty readable. But, yeah, check it out. You can buy tickets online and plan your visit. Well, I'd encourage all of you, make this a location for the coming new year, NASCAR Hall of Fame. You're going to have fun if you love racing or if you want to learn about racing. If you want to take a young person and teach them and create that spark in their life, uh, like what Tom shared with us as he was that little boy looking in that race car, go to the NASCAR Hall of Fame. You're going to have a good time. And I want to do a shout out. Thank you to uh, Kelly Dietrich, who put me in touch with Tom today. Kelly's a past guest. Wonderful lady. She's introduced me to so many cool people. So Kelly, thank you very much. Tom, thank you for being so generous today with your time and sharing the NASCAR Hall of Fame with us and some wonderful stories. Like I said, I think you and I could talk for hours about the stories you've shared. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe, that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, 
and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!